evening, you wonderful, wonderful, wonderful geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie, here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews from the world of all things geek. In a moment, we are going to go to a pre-recorded bit that I recorded very late on Sunday night after I had gotten home from Thought Bubble. I think I mention it in the in what I actually recorded back then, but honestly, it's Thursday now and a lot's happened. If I didn't mention it, uh, I should say that when I recorded my review of Thought Bubble, which I recorded as close to it finishing as I could so that it would all be nice and fresh in my mind, um, I had a stinking cold. Honestly, I still got one, but it's not nearly as bad as it was. Uh, this is traditional, of course. One always leaves a convention with some kind of viral infection because you put that many people into an enclosed space, you're going to catch something. It wasn't COVID, I checked. It is, however, traditional, at least, for, to wait at least a couple of days before you start developing symptoms. I started developing symptoms at the con, which make me th makes me think that if you got a cold at Thought Bubble, it's probably my fault, soz. We have also got news. We have also got other stuff, um, which we'll get to in a minute. But, honestly... I'm going to drop in the recording about Thought Bubble that I did last Sunday night right here, right now, because I miss Thought Bubble already. For 363 days of the year, I miss Thought Bubble. The further away from Thought Bubble I get, the less I remember how much I miss it. And then in the run up to Thought Bubble, I'm all about anticipation of Thought Bubble. And then when it's over, I realize just how much I miss it because of just how much I love it. So, um, yeah, frankly, I want to listen to what I said back on Sunday night because I want to get back to that point in time when Thought Bubble had only just finished. So, for the sound of the TARDIS and come with me back to Sunday night. OK, so it's the evening of Sunday the 12th of November as I record this, which means it's a couple of hours since I got home from Thought Bubble 2023. You might be able to discern from my voice that I am already suffering from the beginnings of a cold, which appears to have started with astonishing rapidity after co after the convention this year. I think it is a cold, it's not COVID. Um, at least I'm testing negative for COVID at the moment. So fingers crossed. But if I sound weirder than normal in this segment of the show, and in other segments of the show that might also be recorded tonight, uh, that'll be why. Hopefully, by the time I record the end of the show, which will be towards the end of this week, I'll sound better. So, how was Thought Bubble 2023? Well, in terms of the shop, incredibly successful. It's probably our most lucrative Thought Bubble yet. That will keep the wolf from the door for a little bit. It will keep the lights on. It will keep us open and operating under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema for a little bit longer. It's it's a really nice safety blanket at the end of the year for us financially, Thought Bubble. Comics retail is, how shall I put this, a financially insecure environment. <laughs> Told on the show before the old joke that the only way to become a millionaire selling comics is to start as a billionaire and work your way down. But I'm not going to lie. Having several thousand comics fans descend on a small town that only has one comic shop, if you're that comic shop, is quite a good thing. From a personal point of view, it was a little bit more subdued than normal. Um, if you've been listening to the show over the last couple of weeks, you may have picked up on the fact 
that I've had some stuff going on in the background. And while that stuff had largely subsided by the time the show began, I was, not to put too fine a point on it, absolutely whacked. And therefore, not my usual ebullient self. So for various reasons, I had less opportunity to get out from behind our table this year than I have in previous years. So I genuinely saw a little bit less of it all. It started well, though. Um, it started on Friday night, a little bit fraught. Um, for reasons connected to the reason my life has been fraught for the last couple of weeks, I was in fact driving back to Harrogate from Cambridge on the Friday before Thought Bubble. This is about a three-hour drive, and I set off from Cambridge at half past twelve, which meant I should easily have been back in Harrogate by 4pm. I actually thought I might have time to take all of our stuff down to the venue, maybe not set up completely, but at least make sure that all the stuff was there before I had to go and host the launch event for Rachel Smith's Nap Comics exhibition, which is being held in the Everyman Cinema, the start of which was supposed to be 6pm. A couple of hours, I thought. That'll be fine. I actually arrived back in Harrogate, parking my car on Victoria Avenue adjacent to the Everyman Cinema at 10 minutes to 6. Even by my standards, that was cutting it fine. Add to that the fact that I had left the notes I'd carefully made for the interview I was going to be conducting with Rachel Smith in Cambridge. And I'm sure you can appreciate, I was a little bit more stressed than I would have liked. The event was, however, in spite of my lack of keeping it together, a great success, actually. Many thanks to all the people who came. It was a decent turnout. Uh, many thanks to Rachel Smith for being so incredibly nice about my cack-handedness. And a huge thanks to Will and the staff of the Everyman Cinema, who were magnificent. The Nap Comics exhibition will remain up at the Everyman Cinema for the next two weeks. You can, if you wish, purchase the original art featured in the exhibition. There are instructions on how to do that uh, as, as part of the exhibition. Essentially, there's a QR code you need to scan. It'll take you to a page on the internet where you can securely purchase whichever piece you want, as long as it's still available. Uh, incidentally, you should know, neither myself nor the everyman are making a cut out of that. All the money goes to the artist, which is how it should be. So that was the start of our Thought Bubble adventure. I find that I can't really go into huge amounts of detail about what happened at the con. Because that is the nature of tabling. I didn't have as many people helping out for as long as I normally do. So I couldn't get away from my table as much as I normally do. So the bits of the show that I saw, I saw at pretty high speed as I was sprinting around the place, trying to see everything in a very short space of time. But it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Lots of people will be on social media telling you what they did at Thought Bubble. Go look at that. I encourage you to do so. What I want to talk about is the ambiance, the vibe, if you like. Because it is, I, I, I say this every year and I'm sure it's getting boring, but it's still true. Thought Bubble is two days in which an, an extraordinary number of incredibly positive, incredibly creative, incredibly nice, and I use the term advisedly, people, come together to celebrate something incredible. 
We're about to enter the boring preachy part, ladies and gentlemen, but not in the way that we normally do. Because this is as close as I'm ever going to get to being a genuine evangelist. All of the things I've ever said about Thought Bubble in the past still stand. I'm just not going to say them again. What I am going to do is talk about how Thought Bubble is affected by the medium it celebrates. Because something that came out of several conversations I had with people, uh, either as I was jetting around the con or they were coming past my stand, was just how affected so many people have been in so many positive ways by comics and what comics can uniquely do. The way that people could use the medium, not just as a means of entertainment, although, my goodness, it is certainly that, not just as a means of self-expression, although, my goodness, it is certainly that, but as a means of self-discovery, a means of communication, a means of understanding. I truly believe that comics are the only medium which can really, truly effectively allow you to see through somebody else's eyes, both literally and figuratively. It does take a little bit of effort. Most people who did not grow up reading comics don't quite engage with them the first time because there's a tendency amongst people who didn't grow up with comics to just read the words. I, heaven knows I did that. I came to comics relatively late in life. I think I was about 15 before I really started getting into comics. And for a long time, I read the words and treated the images just as illustrations. Over time, I came to understand that no, 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 no. Huge amounts of storytelling are in those images. And you have to read the words and the pictures together in a way that we simply don't do naturally if you learn to read in the English education system. Most other education systems too. I'm not picking on the English education system here. To be surrounded by so many people who get it, who totally understand, and who experience comics in the same way that I do, that was special. And I don't want to sound gatekeepery or elitist here. Anyone can do it. It's just that most people don't. And I think people who don't, who spend any time at all at Thought Bubble, would start to see comics in the way that I do. I'm not entirely sure I'm making myself clear now. This is why it's the boring preachy part. I am evangelising. What I'm actually saying is it was so nice to be surrounded by so many people who were so enthusiastic and so enriched by the same thing that enthuses and enriches me. And at the same time, that that space was so welcoming and inclusive. There is no gatekeeping at Thought Ball. There is no you're not one of us nonsense at Thought Bubble. You might never have read a comic in your life and go to Thought Bubble and you will be accepted and welcomed. And I will grant you, if you let people know you've never read a comic in your entire life, bombarded with recommendations, but from a place of love. And again, I use that word advisedly. I am not a person who uses that word particularly often. I don't usually say things. Oh, I love that. It's so amazing. That's not me. I don't talk like that particularly. I'm at my heart a cynical 50-something Yorkshireman. I don't talk like that. But sometimes love is the right word to use. 
And that's what makes Thought Bubble such an amazing place to go, because that's the overwhelming emotion that hits you when you're in the halls. The overwhelming feeling, the atmosphere, if you like, is one of love. Everybody loves comics. Nobody who is there is there for any other reason than they want to celebrate the comics that they love. And they really do just want to share. There's no, oh, you're not a proper fan because you don't know this or, or how can you like that? That's ridiculous. There's none of that. Everybody's allowed to love what they love. So much of the toxicity that you see in many fandoms on social media just isn't there. And it's also actually genuinely a quite diverse place. There's great diversity of thought. There's great diversity of ethnicity, not perhaps as much as we would like, not perhaps as much as would be genuinely representative of the community as a whole. But whilst it does not do to be complacent about this kind of thing, I can tell you as someone who has been going to cons for in excess of 30 years at this point, we have come a long way since the 90s, I think is where I'll leave that. Bubble welcomes everyone, whoever whatever they are, however they choose to identify. The only cardinal sin at Thought Bubble is to be intolerant of other people. If that sounds utopian, well, it is. But so is Thought Bubble. It is just distilled joy. Frankly, I defy anyone to go there and be miserable. Even I can't manage it. And so, I want to just wrap this little mini it's not even a review really is it this little meditation if you like on thought bubble i just want to wrap it up with a couple of things first of all huge 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 thanks uh, I, i've said it already but i'm gonna say it again huge thanks to the everyman cinema and will and all the team there because they made us so so welcome on the friday night with the rachel smith launch honestly they could not have been more brilliant I want to say a huge thanks also to everyone who came to that event. I want to say thank you to everyone who came to our stand at Thought Bubble. I want to say thank you to everyone who we talked to and whose stand we visited. Everyone who bought anything from us. Anyone who bought anyone from anything. Thank you for being part of it. For supporting it. For making it happen. Because it doesn't happen without the people who attend. But of course, to that end, I also need to say a massive thank you to the entire team at Thought Bubble. Chloe and Martha are the two people who I actually know, but there is a big team of people behind the whole thing. And of course, as ever, if you've listened to this over, over years, you will know that we have to end always with a massive shout out to the incredible red shirts, the Thought Bubble volunteers, people who give up their weekend so that everyone else can have a really good weekend, people who will clear up the rubbish, who will show you where to find the thing you're looking for, who will stand behind your table while you go for a wee, who will fetch and carry and enable. They are incredible people, and without them, Thought Bubble would not be what it is. So thank you. To them too. Football 2024 does not have a confirmed date yet. It will have. It will be announced in the coming weeks. Rest assured, as soon as there are announcements, I will pass them on to you. 
And if you missed Thought Bubble 2023, it will be back. And seriously, don't make the mistake of missing it again. Okay. Okay. Enough. Enough, 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 enough. I I genuinely, I could talk about how much I loved Thought Bubble for the whole of this hour and for several hours to come. I'm not going to because whilst I would enjoy it, I'm fairly sure it would be quite dull for everybody else. So still basking in the glow of the Thought Bubble magnificence and positivity. I'll move on. And we're back in the room. Ah, So that was Thought Bubble. And as I said, Thought Bubble 2026, the dates and things have not yet been announced. But it's coming back and I'm looking forward to it already. But we should move on and tackle something current. Yes, we are using the full length Happy Nurse Chapel swing version of the, the, the jingle for this news section because this news really changes everything. Of course, it's not actually news. This happened last week, but it happened in what I can only describe as deliberately annoying timing. It happened literally minutes after I uploaded the final version of last week's show to the interwebs. Now, if you've been paying attention to this kind of thing, you've known this for over a week, but I am only just now able to report this piece of news and celebrate its brilliance because it is finally over. The Screen Actors Guild, the SAG after strike is over and the good guys one. Now, I try not to editorialise too much on this show, although some of you may find that difficult to believe. I have no problem editorialising here. Uh, there, There is very definitely a good side and a bad side to the SAG after strike and indeed to the WGA strike that was successfully concluded by the Writers Guild of America a couple of weeks ago. This is not a case where there were good points on both sides. No, this is a case where a bunch of greedy people were trying to keep all of the money that was generated by their studios for themselves whilst avoiding paying all of the people who actually create that wealth. A long time ago, I studied economics and I came to understand that capitalism is not as bad as a lot of people say. But... If you ever wanted an object lesson into why capitalism can be a problematic system, this was a case study. Objectively, if you ever need a an illustration to to argue against people who tell you that the reason top executives get paid so much money is because They are uniquely talented individuals who are very good at what they do and nobody else could do their job. If you ever need to argue against that view, this, again, is an object lesson because twice now, twice in the space of a a few weeks, the people who run the studios, 
people at the top of things like Warner Brothers and Disney and all of these people. The, these people have twice now essentially settled a strike by giving the people who were on strike not only pretty much what they were asking for in the first place, but also things they said, not only was it not possible to give them, but that it was outrageous and ridiculous of the workers to ask. They have, in the process of doing that, wasted a huge amount of time and a huge amount of money. They have cost their organisations huge amounts of money, not just in lost revenue, but in lost future earnings. And they have wantonly destroyed a number of projects that would have brought money and glory to them, purpose and fulfilment and wages to the people who would have worked on them and joy to the rest of us. In my reporting of this story, I am sounding a little bit strident and a little bit cross. There is a very good reason for that. It's because I am. I have mentioned on a number of occasions when I've been reporting this story, I am a union man. I was a union rep. I am still a member of a union. I'm one of the very few self-employed people who actually is. Uh, but I am a proud member of the National Education Union because I still work in education part time and in a freelance capacity. But still, I work in education. I'm a member of the appropriate union, have been a union rep. When the teachers went on strike, not the most recent time because I wasn't a union rep then. But when the teachers went on strike about 10 years ago, I was a union rep. I was involved in negotiating, not on a national level, but I was involved in negotiating on a school level how the strike days were going to be operated. And I have some experience, therefore, of being able to understand where the other side is coming from. When, when I sat down opposite my head teacher and said, all right, this is what we are and are not prepared to do. This is what we are and are not prepared to give you. I knew that there were things that the head teacher needed and there were things that the head teacher could not do for us. And I understood why. And as people of good faith, we sat around and we figured stuff out. That's what happens when there's a, dis a dispute between rational people of goodwill. What's just happened in Hollywood was not that. What's just happened in Hollywood was the employers making a bunch of extraordinarily unreasonable demands. They wanted to do things like be able to use people's work to feed artificial intelligence um, content generators to produce things that would be sold for profit that the people whose work was fed into that machine did not make money from, were not paid for. They wanted the right to be able to put in the contract of any actor that, as part of this job, we're going to scan you. And once you're scanned, we will have the right to use your digital likeness however we like. We can put you as a background character. We can put your face on another actor. We can we can have a digitized version of you operated like a puppet doing whatever we say, whether you approve of that or not. It's an extreme example, but they could 
under the contract they wanted to do, take somebody who had very profound religious beliefs, um, which prohibited you know, sort of sex outside marriage and that kind of thing, which are perfectly reasonable beliefs to hold. They could take someone who held those beliefs and put their digital likeness into pornography if they'd wanted under the contract they tried to impose on the actors. It is not surprising that the actors went, yeah, no, actually, no. Because even if we don't go to that extreme, what they were also saying was, yeah, we can we can put your digitized likeness into anything. Which means that nobody would ever again have been paid for doing a crowd scene because they could just have created them. Now, the reason that's a problem is how on earth do you think most actors pay their rent? Most actors are not rich. Most actors in America, and bear in mind, we are talking about America here, a country with no healthcare where people can die because they can't afford to buy their insulin. And um, I've got a dog in that fight now and it outrages me that that could ever be a thing. So one of the things you need if you are an American is healthcare. If you're an actor, your healthcare comes through your membership of the union. Because of the way that's all been negotiated and how that works, your Screen Actors Guild insurance kicks in once you've done a certain amount of work. Well, there aren't that many leading actor jobs. So one of the ways you get to qualify for your health insurance, let alone make enough money to pay your rent, one of the ways you make enough money to not die if you get sick is to do crowd work. It's not well paid, but it counts. And they were just going to take that away. They were just expecting that people would be fine with saying, Oh, that thing that is actually fundamental to the job that I do, that thing that makes it possible for the job that I do to exist, that thing. Yeah, I'll give that up. It was ludicrous. No one was ever going to accept it. And nobody ever needed to. Hollywood spends a stupidly small amount of money on this stuff. It, it contributes almost nothing to the overall cost of making a movie or a TV show. It's just a thing that gives people baseline level work and much more important from the point of view from the point of view of the individual that's really important from the point of view of the industry a much more important effect of actors coming in to do that kind of background work is that it gives actors experience it puts actors on set so that they can see how things work so that they can network, so they can make connections, so that maybe they can learn the trade. And if that goes away, then the availability over time, the availability of actors who know what they're doing will become less and less. And that's actually to the detriment of the people who were trying to impose this, because they would then have to pay more for the talent they couldn't generate using AI. and their ability to make certain kinds of show, certain kinds of movie would have been diminished. So they were actually shooting themselves in the foot by penny pinching on this nonsense. Pay rise that the actors were asking for has been given. And do you know what? It didn't do what the studio said it would. The studio said they couldn't possibly afford to pay actors any more than they're already paying them. 
that, you know, the basic scale, the minimum wage, if you like, for actors couldn't possibly be raised. Well, nonsense. Of course it was nonsense. They knew it was nonsense when they said it. So at no point were the studios negotiating in good faith. They simply thought because the people making these decisions are a bunch of talentless, overly entitled, overpraised fools. They simply thought that everyone would lie down in front of them and just willingly be walked over. And they, I am sure, were astonished, not only when they didn't do that initially, but when people stuck to their guns and didn't cave and weren't afraid to make sacrifices, something that the studio heads would never do. And it finally became clear that the only way the studios were going to get this strike over and get back to making money, which is what they care about, was to settle. So eventually they did. But they could have settled this whole thing in 10 minutes and saved all of this. Oh, now it's over and people can get back to work. And when I say people can get back to work, I don't just mean the writers and the actors. When the writers and the actors aren't working, lots of other people don't work too. There are hire car companies whose entire business rests on Hollywood productions hiring vehicles for their shows, for their productions. There are makeup people. There are technical crew, camera operators, lighting riggers, set designers, set builders, prop makers, costumiers, musicians, sound recordists, security guys, people who run food trucks. So many people whose businesses and livelihoods are dependent on the economic ecosystem around TV and movie production in California. And when the studios decided they were going to try and break the will and the spirit of the writers and actors who generate all that money, they were also messing with the livelihoods of all of those people. It was shameful and disgraceful and we should not forget it, but it is at least over. And that means in celebration, after the new segment is over, I will be celebrating the work of some of those magnificent writers and actors and lighting people and camera operators, makeup people and costumiers and so on and so on and so on, who have made the shows that I have seen since the strike started that I have not been able to talk about. And there may be small explosions on the way. But first, is there more news? Well, yes, there is, but I'm not going to cover it this week because that was enough. And yes, that was the boring preachy part. But it's really important. When you watch the shows and the movies that you love, remember that the people who make those things that you enjoy are people. They have families. They have mortgages. They have bills. And they have to make a living. Most of the people you see on that screen are not rich. Most of them, yeah, they'll be making a decent living. Don't whip any tears for them. Once that, you know, when they're in work, they're probably doing fine. But it's also an incredibly insecure profession. So, yes, the wage, you know, you might hear that someone's paid a million dollars an episode of, of a TV show and think, well, blimey, I could, we, we should all be so badly paid. Well, yeah, but think of, what comes out of that? 
they have to pay their agent. They have to pay their manager. They have to pay their trainer. Because these days, you know, I mean, do you think Chris Evans looks like that naturally? And of course, they have to squirrel enough of, of that away so that when they can no longer work, when the work dries up, and that can happen at any time, when the work dries up, they've got enough money to live on and keep going. Most actors don't get a million dollars an episode. Most actors might get a couple of thousand dollars an episode. And yes, over over a, a twenty week, a twenty episode show, that might be quite a lot of thousands of dollars. But that might have to last for a couple of years. So, you know, even the ones who are doing pretty well, even the season regular, even the series regulars, on many shows, aren't earning really more than you know average money. Any actors, the bit part actors, the people who don't get on TV very much. The people who are only in the background, they're running less. And I, I say that mostly just to remind you that this strike was annoying to people like us. I, I, I have joked previously that the, the greatest sin that the studio heads have committed in all of this is inconveniencing me. And from my point of view, yeah, that is. But actually, no. This strike was a massive inconvenience to me. I'm annoyed by it. But. For the people who were actually on strike, it was a real sacrifice. They genuinely struggled. A lot of actors and writers struggled. But they stood firm. And I applaud them. And we're getting boring and preachy again. So we really will move on. And it is still going to be, though, the joyful, swinging, happiness chapel version of the jingle to sign this section out. So now it is definitely time to start talking about things that I have not been able to talk about. And we're going to start with something out there. So much good Star Trek happened. Well, I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I could have burst. I could actually genuinely literally have burst. I can't afford, afford the time to go into all of it now. So I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about Star Trek Lower Decks, which I had never seen until I watched the second thing I'm going to talk about, which is the... Live action stroke animated crossover between Star Trek Lower Decks and Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And then I'm going to talk about where that news jingle came from. OK, so Star Trek Lower Decks. Why had I never watched it before? I don't know. I really don't know. The only possible answer I can give you as to why I had never watched Star Trek Lower Decks until the crossover with Strange New Worlds is that I am really stupid and I make bad decisions because. I kind of assumed that other than animated Star Trek, uh, that'll be for kids. And I'm sure it's great and fine and everything. 
but it's not not going to be for me and there's other stuff I can pay attention to. I'm just going to say if you've got a diary you might want to get it and make a note of the date you're listening to this because I'm about to say something that I do not admit to very often. I Reginald Keith Rigby was wrong. There you go. I know I know it's hard for you to accept. It will mess with your overall worldview, and I'm sorry. But when I just blithely thought that an animated, cartoony-looking version of the Star Trek universe would simply not be for me, I was completely and totally wrong. I offer no excuse. I must now accept the error of my ways and the appallingness of my judgment. Because Star Trek Lower Decks is possibly the most entertaining, most Star Trekian Star Trek that there has ever been. It is genuinely that good. Yes, it is also really dumb. And really stupid. Yes, it is. On purpose, in a way that works. And it is also just full of absolute joy. You can tell that the people who made this show love Star Trek more than probably anyone else. Certainly they love it as much as anyone who's watching. It it comes through in every scene, in everything, that love of Star Trek is, it's encoded into the DNA of the show. So fundamental is it to the product they put on the screen. If you are unfamiliar with Star Trek Lower Decks, it is an animated series. Episodes are around about half an hour long. It focuses on the exploits of four lower deckers. Four of the people who are just regular crew aboard a fairly average starship, the USS Cerritos, a California-class ship. Not a capital ship like the Enterprise, a lowly little ship that does the the non-glamorous work of Starfleet. If you're going to do first contact with an alien species that you've never contacted before, you send Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Starship Enterprise, or perhaps you send Captain William Riker of the USS Titan. Second contact, taking the medical supplies that the first contact people promised. Yeah, that's the USS Cerritos' job. It's not glamorous, but it needs to be done. Every ship that boldly goes where no one has gone before, there has to be the ship that boldly follows and cleans up. That's the USS Cerritos. And that is the work of the lower deckers of the USS Cerritos. The people on the unglamorous ship who has the unglamorous jobs on the unglamorous ship. And our focus is on four of these lower deckers. You have medical officer Tendi and Orion, who whose heritage is one of piracy. 
who holds the title Mistress of the Winter Constellations, although she doesn't like to talk about it, and who is utterly in love, not only with Starfleet, but with science. A woman who is filled with optimism and joy and light, who sees the best in everyone and everything, to the point that if they did not model her on Kaylee Fry from Firefly, then it's the most astonishing example of convergent evolution you will ever see. And then there's Rutherford, an incredibly talented engineer who just loves his job. He loves engineering and he loves his ship. He loves the USS Cerritos every bit as much as Scotty loved the Enterprise, every bit as much as Geordi loved the Enterprise D, probably more than Geordi loved the Enterprise D, actually, if we're honest. And he loves being in science. He, he, he's not bothered about rising to the top to become chief engineer. He really respects his chief engineer. He just wants to make things work more efficiently. He loves that stuff. You may be getting the, the, the sense here that Tendi and Rutherford are nerds. And I love them for that. Then there's Boimler. Hapless, hapless Boimler. Boimler, in his heart, wants to be Captain Picard. He is not, and he never will be. He's accident prone, he's nervous, he's anxious, he's socially awkward, but his heart is in the right place, and he really, really wants to do the right thing, and he really, really, really wants to get a captain's chair someday. And then, floating above it all, like, like, a, like a hurricane filled with knives, is Mariner. Mariner who is chaotic, who is insubordinate, who is standing against authority, almost anarchic in her worldview. But she also loves Starfleet and everything it stands for. And beneath all of her performative laziness and insubordination, she is unbelievably capable. I, I sort of see the relationship between Mariner and Boimler as very similar to the relationship between Laurel and Hardy. Boimler is very highly strung and prone to panic and overreaction, like Stan Laurel. Mariner, Mariner is perhaps a little bit less, a little bit less laid back than Oliver Hardy. But she appears to be the one in charge. And she is very capable. But every so often, something will happen and Boimler will need to step up. And he does. And the dynamic between the four of them is just wonderful. It's so nice to have a show about friendship. And really at the heart of Lower Decks, is that friendship between the four of them. There's no will-they-won't-they they sexual tension between any of them. In fact, a couple of people have referred at various points to uh, Boimler as, as Mariner's boyfriend or to Mariner as Boimler's girlfriend, and they've both gone, Ugh, no, Ugh. they're great friends. There's no sexual tension there at all. And the show, actually, in season four, makes a huge joke out of the fact that Rutherford and Tendi are clearly very deeply in love with each other, but 
they they simply don't interpret that love in a romantic way. It's a running gag across a couple of episodes, and it's so beautifully done. And I know people who have relationships like that, and you've got to. I, I, it's it's beautiful to see, and you don't see that very often in fiction. You know, normally they go for that. Oh, will they? Won't they? Moonlighting thing. Hi, sorry. This is Reggie from the future just dropping in. It's been pointed out to me that younger listeners might not know what moonlighting was. Um, what can I tell you? It was a detective show. Uh, it was Bruce Willis's first big gig. Uh, he played David Addison. David Addison! Um, and he was a, a private detective who ended up working with the very posh, um, very snooty uh, Madison Hayes, uh, played by Sybil Shepherd. And almost the entire premise of the show was the, the very clear romantic and sexual tension between, between David Addison and Maddie Hayes, and yeah, the, the whole will they, won't they thing went on for, what, four seasons, five seasons, and then they ruined it by saying, yeah, they will, and that destroyed the whole thing. Anyway, it, I don't know whether it's streaming anywhere. If you've seen it, then you know what I'm talking about, and you probably love it as much as I do. Uh, if you haven't seen it, then if you can find it streaming anywhere, just watch a couple of episodes because it was some of the finest television that the 1980s had to offer. And yes, that was the decade that gave us Star Trek The Next Generation, so I do not say this lightly. Anyway, sorry, I'll hand you back to me from the past now, who simply hadn't cottoned on to the idea that people might not, in fact, know what moonlighting was. So that's, that's the premise of Lower Decks. And there's other stuff going on. There are spoilers and reveals that I won't, you know... There are things about Mariner that we find out. There are things about Boimler and Tendi that we find out that you just don't need to know about any of that stuff. Just watch the show and find it out. Uh, I'm given to understand that at the moment you can get a month free trial of Paramount Plus, which is where you'll find this show. Uh, and so do it, do it, do it, do it for free. Do it while you don't have to pay for it and just revel in its magnificence. It's funny. It's fast. It's fun. It's surprisingly profound. And do you know what? I probably will be getting some people onto the show to talk to about individual episodes of Lower Decks. It's that good. There is that much to say about it. But I haven't given myself a lot of time, so I must move on. You already know how much I love Star Trek Strange New Worlds. I've talked about that before. Before the strike, I was talking about how much I loved Star Trek Strange New Worlds. One of the first episodes of that show that I saw after the strike had started, but which meant that I couldn't talk about it, was a crossover between Star Trek Lower Decks and Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Specifically, the Star Trek Strange New Worlds episode, These Old Scientists. Now, in that episode, we start with the animated crew of the Cerritos going to look at a time portal, a dormant time portal, that was on a planet that had been discovered in the time of the Strange New Worlds crew. Because Lower Decks is set sort of slightly post Star Trek The Next Generation. Strange New Worlds is set slightly pre-Star Trek The Original Series. So there's, you know, Lower Decks is about 140 years in the future, as far as Strange New World is concerned. So. The, the, the Lower Decks 
crew are looking at this portal. It's a lower decker's job. It's just, you know, lit- literally a checking it thing. It's not a high status mission. They send Mariner and Rutherford and Boimler and Tendi. And Boimler accidentally goes through the portal and ends up in the time of Strange New Worlds. And there's all kinds of hilarity as a live action version of Boimler, played by the guy who voices him on the show, on on the animated show, uh, goes and interacts with people who he regards as historical figures and heroes and gets things kind of wrong. And then just as the Strange New Worlds crew are trying to send Boimler back to his future, Mariner, who is attempting also to bring Boimler back through the time portal, comes through the time portal. And then they both get stuck there. And there's a couple of things. I'm not going to... There's a couple of things which actually are major plot points for the whole story arc of the season that are initiated by things that Boimler and Mariner do, which actually serve to put things onto the track that we know they should take as people who know Star Trek continuity. So it's very cleverly done. It's beautifully done. Um, of course, forgotten the name of the actor who plays Boimler. Uh, somebody Quaid. He's the guy who plays Wee Huey in The Boys. Uh, and he's equally good in this. Uh, it, it's really interesting because obviously him and Tandy, uh, Tandy Newton, who plays Mariner and who voice acts Mariner on the animated show, she plays live action Mariner on Strange New Worlds. And both of them, if you think about it, they're both voice actors as far as those characters are concerned. They're both great actors anyway, but for the purposes of playing Boimler and Mariner, they are simply giving the voice. The physical mannerisms that we now associate with Boimler and Mariner, the way Boimler walks, he has a sort of weird mince that he does. Um, These are things that the animators created. But both Quaid and Newsom bring that physicality to their physical performance. It's so wonderfully done. And then at the end of the episode, when it's everything's resolved and Mariner and Boimler have gone back to their future, there's a little animated epilogue featuring the crew of the Enterprise commenting that, is it me or does, does everything seem more two-dimensional than normal? And it's, it's very funny. It's very beautifully done. And when you consider that this is a show, Strange New Worlds is a show that goes from that kind of whimsy, from actually having animated characters in a live action show and blending the whole thing together in a, in a fairly whimsical sort of comedy style episode, goes straight from that to an episode about war crimes and post-traumatic stress disorder. And then goes into the final episode I want to talk about now that I can. It goes into a musical. And I was so bummed I couldn't talk to you about the musical episode when it first aired because I'm cynical about this stuff. I was there when Buffy the Vampire kicked all this off. Okay, It was Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer that first made musical episodes a thing in geek shows. And looking back at Once More With Feeling, which was the Buffy musical episode, my goodness, we've come a long way. Once More With Feeling, I quite liked. I still quite like it. Um, 
but Subspace Rhapsody, which is the episode of Strange New Worlds that is musical, is so much better. It's, the, the production values are so much higher. The quality of the singing is so much better. It helps when one of your actors actually has won an Emmy, but still, it's not a perfect episode. A couple of the songs, frankly, are too long, but it is a magnificent episode. It's got some banging tunes. I I I was singing How come wherever I go I'm solo At my best I am unaccompanied I was singing that for ages Just as I was singing Tagus is at the helm The pilot's seat is my realm I was singing that as well for, for weeks Weeks afterwards I make no apology for singing them again because it was so cleverly done. And there were things that happened again in that show that are a reaction to things that happened in the Lower Decks crossover that are major plot points. This news really changes everything, which is sung in two different versions. The upbeat boppy one by Happy Nurse Chapel. This news really changes everything. That one. That causes something to happen that leads to the sad Spock version. This news really changes everything. That version. Okay. That actually puts Spock onto the track that he was not previously on. The track that will make him the logic machine that is adult Spock. If we accept that, you know, Spock in Strange New Worlds is young Spock. He's pre-Kirk Spock. He will become the Spock that we know from the original series and from the movies and from subsequent shows. That version of Spock is born in this episode. And it's done in song. And I can't believe they pulled it off. Because it would have been a plot point. It would have been a series of events that would have taken so much time to explain the emotional changes that are going on. If you'd done it in a conventional way. But here they can do it in two songs. And then finally, we get to the big finale, which is a huge song about what it means to be the crew of the Enterprise. And I swear to goodness, if Star Trek ever needs a theme tune that just sums up the point of the show. That was it. They've written it. It exists. It's that final final finale piece. I'm not going to lie. When I read that they were going to do a crossover between a live action show and a cartoon, I was cynical. When they said they were doing a musical episode, I was more cynical still. I actually like a good show to you, but musical episodes of regular shows always seem trite and forced to me. This worked. Yes, the the reason that people keep breaking out into song aboard the Enterprise is utter nonsense. 
but it's Star Trek nonsense. It's something that makes as much sense as anything else they do in Star Trek. And why not? I would say, why the Dickens not? The only reason not to do it is if you can't do it well. And actually, they did. And none of it was a gimmick. I mean, of, co- of, I mean, of course it was a gimmick at, on, on, at, on one level, but it was also a show that drove the plot of the overall show forwards. This is not a disposable episode. You can't skip it because stuff happens in it that is hugely relevant to the development of all of the characters on board the ship. It's a piece of work that is impossibly, impossibly impressive. There are some things that you will notice if you look for them. You will notice, for instance, that there are suddenly new members of the crew that appear to be everywhere. That's because they clearly could only afford to hire a a limited number of people who could dance. Those people will appear in every scene where there's dancing, wherever that takes place. And yes, some of the songs are too long. It's very clear that the actor who plays uh, La'an Noonan Singh, she has a musical theatre background. She was clearly very up for this. She gets a very long song, which is too long. Fairly clear that Anson Mount, who plays Captain Pike, was up for this but not that up for this and not that confident about his singing voice, which is a shame because it's actually quite good. But, you know, he turns in a couple of performances, but avoids most of the solo singing and so on and so on and so on. Um, Ethan Peck, who plays Spock, my goodness, he's got a good singing voice. But it's it's just a piece of wonderfulness. And again, if you haven't seen Strange New Worlds, I think at the moment you can get a free trial of Paramount+. Plus which would allow you to watch Strange New Worlds. And if you haven't seen it and you like Star Trek even a bit, I can only recommend that you give both it and Lower Decks a go. Thank me later, because I think you'll love it. Okay, uh, we're going to wrap that there. Next week, we will be talking about Ahsoka, which I also have good things to say about. But we are running out of time. Uh, a quick glance at the Geek Community Notice Board reveals one thing. This coming Sunday, the 17th, 18th, 19th of November is the Geek Pub Quiz at Major Tom's. Uh, get there for about seven. Things will kick off about 7.30. It's in celebration of Doctor Who, which is 60 years old. Have I mentioned that Doctor Who is 60 in just a couple of, well, less than two weeks time now, Doctor Who will be 60 years old. Steve and Helen and Chris will be at Major Tom Social with a quiz to celebrate 60, count them, 60 years of adventures in the TARDIS. I'll be there. I can't wait. But we really do need to put a lid on everything there. So thank you for listening. Remember, it's now only just over 51 weeks until the next Thought Bubble probably happens. So bear that in mind. And we will be back next week with Ahsoka and all manner of other TV stuff, as well as space news and other things. There is some space news I would have got into today if I hadn't wanted to talk about singing Star Trek quite so much. We will be back with all of that very, very soon. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to absolutely 
everybody else. Stay safe, stay sane, and above all else, stay geeky. We will see you next week. Bye.